Hi, I'm Len Epp from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Gregor Hoppe. Based in Singapore, Gregor is Senior Principal Evangelist at Amazon Web Services, a popular international speaker, and the author of a number of best-selling books. He's an expert on software architecture, former technical director in the office of the CTO at Google, and former chief software architect at the global financial services giant Allianz. You can follow him on Twitter at GOPA and check out his blog at architectelevator.com slash blog, and he's also easy to find on LinkedIn. Gregor is the author of the uh, new release uh, at the time of recording book uh, on LeanPub, Platform Strategy, Innovation Through Harmonization. In the book, Gregor condenses his years of experience building and using technology platforms into a mental framework for platform development. He provides a fresh look at what makes IT platforms work, why they are different from other IT services, how you can use them to boost developer productivity, and how ideally they can provide a way for you to do almost anything you can imagine within the constraints uh, that they're built on and based on the principles that they're built on as well. In this interview, we're going to talk a little bit about briefly about what Gregor's been up to since his last appearance on the podcast uh, about five years ago, uh, his book and his process for writing the book and how long he's been working on it. So thank you very much, Gregor, for coming back to the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. Yeah, it's my, my pleasure and good to see you again. It's great. Uh, yeah. Um, so it's been about five years. So I wouldn't want if you could take a couple of minutes just to give us some highlights of what you've been up to. I know you've done done a lot of interesting things in that time. Yeah, so I'm not sure I can recall all five years, but I would say a good way to summarize it. Many people will know sort of I like the concept of the architect elevator, right? The idea that architects should be working at many different levels. So I've been doing quite a bit of elevator writing, actually. So my my job used to be um, primarily customer facing, you know, working with strategic customers, you know, cloud strategy, like my previous book, right? Doing those kind of things. But then beginning of this year, so almost one year ago, I actually joined the serverless engineering teams. So I didn't go down, follow my own advice, go down into the engine room and work on serverless integration. Now, the funny part about that, besides you know changing levels quite a bit, is also that I get to use a lot of the work that I did 20 years ago with Bobby Wolf, and that's the enterprise integration patterns. So that's all coming back because the serverless integration is all event-driven, asynchronous, distributed. So it's nice to see that some of that content actually is still relevant after 20 years. So that's, I don't know whether I can hope for that with every book, but at least sort of that's my, my ambition to, to talk about things and write things that at least pass a little bit the test of time. And if you're really lucky, maybe even 20 years. Yeah, and speaking of things that pass the test of time, um, I think I, when I was researching for this interview, I think I came across something that I believe you invented in those last five years, which is the the uh, concept of Gregor's Law. You have a joke that you know if you want to be serious, you've got to have a law named after you, so you named one after yourself, uh, and it's a really great concept. And I was just wondering if you could briefly dip into dip into Gregor's Law and what that is. Yeah, so you're absolutely right. There's a there's a little bit of sort of a status game in the. Uh, I don't know, I don't like the word thought leader, but whatever we are, the people who talk about software a lot, so we have a certain status. And the one thing is, you know, to get to have your law, it's like the Conway's law kind of thing. So I just made up Gregor's law. And what it's all about is I've been thinking a lot about architecture and decision-making and complexity and the trade-offs involved there, right? It's like, you know, the, the classic story of, yeah, architecture gives you flexibility, but too much flexibility also drives complexity. So then I summarize this in, in Gregor's Law, which basically says that excessive complexity 
that is nature's punishment for organizations who are unable to make decisions. Like if you want everything all the time and all option, you want to write your software in any language on any platform, running in anything and any scale in anything, right? You never want to lock anything down. The result is that you will drown in complexity. And what I'm trying to express there is that that is an inherent trade-off between you got to put a few stakes in the ground and move ahead. Doesn't mean you need to paint yourself in a corner. Absolutely not. But it keeps you away from sort of trying to have everything all the time. And then, yeah, to be cheeky about it, I named that. I named then Gregor's Law. That's great. I know. I know you love metaphors, and you used like four in that sentence, which is just fantastic. The one, the one I was thinking of when I was coming up, when I was thinking about it, was like uh, having done some product development and stuff myself over the years. You know, the if you're not willing to close any doors, you're going to end up in a maze. <laughs> that, I like that also. Yep, you know, that's some, very some, similar. You're, yeah, because yeah, yeah. when you're when you're building something, there's always going to be somebody going, you know, like let's say let's say from the Lean Pub perspective, there's always going to be an author going, you know, what I'd really love is this, and you know, what I'd really love is that, and then there's going to be someone on the team who's like, you know, what that makes me think of is this and that, and like the excitement and rush of it can be great. There, and if you've got like if you're bigger than us and you have kind of like advertising people and or like you know people out there doing enterprise sales, for example, and they're like. Oh, I can land this client if you just do this for me, or if you can just do that. And if you if you're never willing to kind of close anything off, um, you just end up incredibly complex with things that don't have any relationship to each other at all, really, other than the kind of accidents of people's interests and things they like. Oh, I like I, I might I might borrow that. I, I do like that. Yes. So basically, in, based on the same insight, right? If you want everything all the time, if you're not willing to close anything off. Ultimately, you will pay a very high price. And to some extent of my day job, we see this a little bit also, to be honest, right? Like, you know, Amazon AWS, we like to be customer obsessed, like listen to the customers a lot. But I always tell people listening to the customers is great, but the customers don't deliver you the requirements document, right? They have a series of wishes and ideas. And to be honest, they're usually biased because they see the world through this one product they're using. And then they say, oh, if this one product did this additional, this one service in our case, did this additional thing, you know, I'd be so much happy or I'd be spending more money or whatever it is. And it's also tempting to basically consider that your backlog. And that is maybe well-intentioned, right? You really want to listen to the customers, but you're skipping the most important step, which is translating what the customer is perceiving, translating what the customer is wishing into an actual product strategy and a cohesive set of products. And that requires you to also close some doors. You need to know what you're good at. You need to know what's in scope and what's out of scope. So we, we face similar discussions almost on a weekly basis. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. That reminded me, I know you like to talk about um, the car industry when you're talking about things and coming up with analogies. I think there's the old, the old sort of joke. I don't know if it's apocryphal or whatever that, you know, Henry Ford said, if you asked a customer what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. Um, yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, you want it, you want to think, Actually, I'm reading. I'm reading this book right now. I don't know if you've heard of it. Ah, okay, close to home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we lift this. We lift this every day. Yep. Yeah. And um, the funny story, not to dovetail on this, is um, Ford though. So Ford was very much about standardization, right? The other um, you know, quote is say you can have any any color you want as long as it's black. So that got Ford going in mass production early on. But the second part of that story apparently is that 
Later on, they lost huge amount of market share because they didn't listen to the, listen to the customers at all. So there's this interesting tension, like if you really want to push innovation, at some point you need to go like, hey, I have my own vision and I'm setting a lot of rules here because that way I can make a big leap. But then once the technology sort of solidifies and standardizes a little bit, you need to change gears. So there's a lot of data that I think they used to have a vast market share, like 70 or 80%. And within a decade or so, that dropped to like 30 or 40% because other automakers came in and you could have different colors, a little bit more comfort, right? So in the end, it's interesting that not one size fits all. It really depends on the stage that the technology is at and the stage that the customer expectations are at. So there's a there's a second half to this four chapter of the horses and the black the black color apparently. Yeah, that no that that's super interesting. I didn't know that, and it, it was just just because I've been reading this book that I just showed. Um, uh, you know, that's all about Amazon and and its internal processes and stuff. That's one of the brilliant things, and I never really quite put it together until now about the sort of press writing the press release in advance of actually yes making your product because you're you're thinking about what it's going to look like to the customer what is what are you actually going to be delivering to them what are they actually actually going to be able to use it so but then but then you back out what you have to do in order to do that so you're thinking both at the same time very hard about what you should be doing for the customer but also what what their needs are um and it's just a super super like sort of one of those approaches that just seems so obvious once you hear it but like they tell the story in the book about how hard it was to get there uh, and, all, all, all the time. And it's still hard to it's still hard to write them. So we, we do use this all the time. It's all real. But yeah, it's, they're not easy to write, right? Because you, know, you need to, well, it is backwards in, in a way. You need to sort of think about, oh, what if my product had launched and they're actually using it and what benefit they get? But it really forces you to think about the value still I would say not a, every PR FAQ is equally good. So there's the format, but then there's also getting the spirit of it and really making it rich and, and good. So they're not easy to write even even today, but we use them all the time. Speaking of things that aren't easy to write, uh, books um, typically aren't easy to write. And uh, this one that you've just published uh, has been a few years in the making, uh, Platform Strategy, Innovation Through Harmonization. Uh, when I was watching videos that you've done uh, over the last couple of years researching for this um, podcast, I kept I kept coming across you going, I promise I'm still working on the book. I promise I'm still working on the book. And so I know it's been a while. So uh, when did you, do? if you recall, when did you first get the idea for writing this book? And uh, what's the journey been like to sort of hitting publish for the first time? Mm. So the journey goes far back. So the work with platforms I actually did well, that's probably around 2015, 16, when I built an internal developer platform. Um, and it's one of those things where you do, I always say architects have sort of two ways of working. Like you do the actual thing, and then you have sort of the other meta level where you reflect on what you're actually doing, right? We always, we always a little schizophrenic. So way back when I did the actual thing, I built a platform, but I didn't really reflect on it that much. I was like, hey, I want to make software release easier, faster, speeding up, containerize a lot of things, right? This was hot technology at the time, right? So um, we actually built this and had a lot of success with that in a large organization. But we didn't write much about it. And yeah, I was busy you know, writing then later, you know, 37 things came out of that time. So I was very interested in transformation of organizations. 
But somehow in the back of my my brain, sort of the gears kept spinning. And then um, late in 2019, early 2020, I joined the Singapore government, like their GovTech division. And then at that time, platforms already was a much hotter term. And there we built internal developer platforms. And one of the things that I did was help the team make decisions. So they were very talented and built cool stuff. But one of the things I helped them do is sort of crystallize the design decisions and trade-offs, right? Like where is really the important decision? How do you know if you want to go left or right? What if you bought both options? Can you close the door or leave the door open, right? Can you lock some things down? So then I started collecting some mental models and as you mentioned, some metaphors. So it's like the, the fruit salads and the cubes and the yardsticks and sort of some many things came out of that. And that was actually then the trigger to start writing this book. So I would say the first content probably dates back to 2019, 2020. So it's been a long time. And you would think the pandemic would be good for writing books because you're like basically sitting at home and have all the time. But I have other friends who tell me that is not true at all because you know, you're sitting at home, you're sort of lacking the inspiration, the energy, too many distractions. You start cleaning things and making dinner. And I have a friend in Germany who basically had the same issue during the pandemic. He could do very little writing. And I think the same thing happened to me as well. And then, yes, I kept promising that the book would come out. And thanks to lean publishing and early releases, it's not finished, but it's actually published. So that is the good news. Yeah, no, that's that's really good news. And it's, it's interesting. Thanks for sharing that story about the pandemic. Actually, one thing that happened over the last few years is that this this podcast actually, for a while, for a couple of years there, I had a segment where I was like, what's it like for you? Or what's it been like for you? Because people's career, their jobs, their family life, but also very specifically where they are, like different parts of London meant you had a different experience of the pandemic, oh, yeah. for example, you know, things like that. And so, yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. We do I, I can say we do we do have some books that exist only because of the pandemic. Um, yeah. uh, you know, people who got like they were tra like at the very beginning who were traveling and just were literally told you can't leave, and they're like, well, you know, I guess I'm I'm not in my home and I'm not doing my job, so I'm going to write a book or something like that. But it's great to hear about the diversity of experiences. I just wanted to, to mention that the concept of platform here. So you go into it in the book. I'd recommend everyone everyone buy it, the different types of platform, what a platform is. Um, but you know, I, I'm just recalling I was. Like, you know, a couple of uh, Lean Pub authors that I've talked to on the podcast have talked about, you know, building a, a platform for The Economist or building a platform for The Financial Times or something like that, where like, you know, it's kind of like, okay, we've got this basic, we know what we're doing, right? We're, we're like a newspaper or we're a magazine or something like that. But now we've got to build an internal platform for producing content going forward. And it gets, it can get incredibly complex right away. You can have like, respecting journalists time for example you know like like mm -hmm. why why do you want to make it usable well so the journalists can file their story on time and so they don't have to learn too much or they, how often do you change it things like that right because if you if a journalist is on a deadline and all of a sudden they 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 open up an app and it's different you know they can't make it um so i guess i would say i would ask you just in general with your like extensive experience what would you say are the two biggest one, one or two of the biggest challenges you see organizations run into when they're like, okay, we want to get into this platform thing. What are, what are one or two of the biggest problems that they encounter? Mm, yeah, and actually the list of problems is relatively long, and this has a little bit to do with what always happens in the industry. 
So in one hand, I'm lucky, right? Because I just mentioned, I really started working with this, you know, late 2019, early 2020 and started writing around the time. So we're about three years late. So normally we would think in the IT industry, stuff doesn't last three years, but interestingly, many things take a long time. So platform's still a super hot topic, and we've seen this with the book, right? The interest now that is out has been has been extremely high. But what happens is, and I think Martin Fowler calls this the semantic diffusion. It might be another law of sorts, and that is by the time a concept really gets broad adoption, most of its meaning is actually lost. So that happened to Agile, for example, right? And people were super happy, but in a very... Um, sort of almost the you know, subset of the population, like a little clique, right? They were doing Agile thing and very happy. And then and someday everybody start, started talking about Agile, but then the original people felt like, hold on, that has very little to do with the Agile thing we did originally. And I think platform suffers from this a little bit. Now everything is a platform, right? If you want to have an IT strategy of sorts or an architecture strategy, sticking platform in just somehow sounds good. So the problems, you know, to your question, the problems I see is people latching on to the terms, but not really getting to the root of how is this thing creating value? Like making a post-it note and writing platform on it and sticking it on anything <laughs> doesn't make it a platform. Now, everybody would say, well, obviously not. That is stupid, right? But if you look at what people do in IT, that happens quite a lot. They take their existing, let's say, infrastructure. So you mentioned more of a business services platform like publishing, right? Yeah. A lot of people also do infrastructure developer platforms, right? We build a cloud platform, right? So there's many layers of this, but failure mode number one is People take what they have and just relabel it as platform, and then they're shockingly surprised that very little change. Now, there's good reasons for that. It's not because they are, you know, particularly silly or something, but it's people have certain ways of working. There's certain structures, certain incentives in the organization, and then people want to do something with platforms, but the gravity pulls them back in the old ways of working. So that is a a failure mode that that I see quite a lot. The the other failure mode is probably that, like so many things, platforms has become the cure all. So we're like, oh, we want better security governance, higher developer productivity. So it's the other end of the spectrum, right? Higher productivity, happy developers, good employer branding, uh, innovative software. Let's make a platform, and then it's going to do all these things. And again, of course that it isn't going to do. You need to have a strategy. You need to have clarity on what decisions and trade-offs you're making. That's why the title of these books is strategy, like cloud strategy, platform strategy, because it tries to get you to make these kind of decisions. It's like, okay, yes, you can have governance. You can also look to reduce cognitive load. You can look to speed some things up, but how exactly you are going to do that? So I find people who blow up the expectations and grandiose slides and the other platform is going to solve all of these issues. But when you look at the actual implementation, it's like, oh, we're going to install this tool. Oh, we, we have, you know, whatever, backstage IO or something, which isn't even a bad thing for developer portals or something, but that alone isn't going to get you to all your visions. So I see a big disconnect and it's, 
I see it all the time where the, and that's what I call the strategies. So that the big vision is up here and then there's very little connection to the actual implementation. And of course, that's never going to end well. So my books, what they really try to force people to do is, is, is to make that connection. Like, what do you really want and how are you really going to get there? So this book in the intro has a warning label. So, that, you know, when you buy an electrical product, it has all these warnings. So I put a warning label in and the warning label basically is, this book will not answer any of your questions, which sounds a little harsh because people read books to get answers. But I said, well, the book is really there for you to ask better questions and come to better answers yourself. It's not a recipe book when I say like, should I go this way or this way or to use VMF or should I close this door or that door? The short answer is, how would I know, right? There is no recipe. Oh, the left door should be closed always. It's like, there isn't such a thing. So instead, what I want to do is help you think more clearly and come to the good answer yourself. But that also means the book is only half the story, right? It can help you get this clarity. But then the other half is, well, you need to put what you learned to work and actually go actually go make, make those decisions. Because otherwise, I don't think you'll be happy with, with your platform strategy. Yeah, and just to give people a little bit of a flavor of the, the, the sort of very specific things that you go into. So, you know, it, uh, when it comes to strategy, for example, understanding, like in order to know, get to where you're going, you have to understand what you're doing. And one of the things about platforms that you go into is the, the sort of paradox that um, centralizing some decision-making, putting constraints on things and standardizing things or harmonizing things can actually free you up to, to do more, but people often think that it's a, it's like, oh, like, you know, you're throwing constraints on me. Like, you're not going to let me do this and you're not going to let me do that. And it's like, but by, by providing a coherent implemented set of decisions with understood kind of rules in them, that actually enables people to kind of do anything they want if the platform is well constructed. Yes. And that's a really central point. And the subtitle hints at this, right? It says mm -hmm. innovation through harmonization. So you standardize something, but it drives innovation. And that is something that is a bit the magic of platforms. But again, it's really nuanced. So it doesn't mean all constraints have this property because many constraints actually do constrain and they don't enable anything. So what we need to get at is which kind of constraints have this nice property and which other constraints actually just like, you know, take, take choices away. And the basic example I often give is like common APIs, right? If we put all our services have a common API, you lock down the interface, right? Everything needs to be HTTPS, OAuth, JSON, whatever it is, right? And you specify your interfaces and you're obviously constraining. But because of that, you gain the freedom to make each service in a different language or to host it on a different platform on a different computer, right? To distribute it. So that is a good example to think about how standardizing some things affords you flexibility. Here's the catch though. Like people always like to latch on to sort of, oh, I can constrain things and it gives you flexibility. So what happens is, Many platforms are also driven by governance, right? Like I worked in financial services, so regulatory compliance, 
auditing, all these kind of things, very real, very important. But what happens is then people say, oh, look, now constraining is good because constraining actually drives innovation. So the governance teams come with this long list of sort of constraints and they say, look, yeah, with platforms, I now can make all these constraints and you should still be super productive. And then we found out, no, that is not automatically the case. <laughs> constraints are also constraints. So I'm actually just um, speaking of metaphors, I'm drawing a picture and I'm not a great artist, so I need some iterations. But basically what the developers expected is that the constraints speed them up and the mental picture I have is a highway. Right, a highway also constrains you. You cannot enter and exit everywhere you want, but you're happy to make that trade-off because you can move really fast. And that's what the developers have in mind when they hear platform. But sometimes what you might get is actually, it's not a highway, it's like a dirt path, but it has huge guardrails left and right, so you should never get off, but you're not actually moving faster. So what I'm trying to do is on one hand, be lighthearted about these metaphors and you know, talk about these things and highways and stuff, but also really get to the important nuances. So let's say, hey, it doesn't help you if you make these giant guardrails and constraints if the road that you leave is no longer actually a highway. And I see more people now posting about this here you know, because the notion of the golden path has become so popular. There's sort of one golden path and if you follow that golden path, your life will be really good. But in reality, often I think it flips the inverse. The life on the golden path may be so-so, but if you get off, off the golden path, your life will be really miserable. <laughs> and that is, of course, not going to make everybody or anybody happy. So what I'm trying to get to is highlight these magic properties, right? You can put constraints and give, in, you know, give people actually more ability to innovate and more freedom. But I also tell people that that doesn't happen automatically. It only happens in certain constellations. And that's sort of the diving deep part of, of the book to get into those kind of nuances. Uh, while you were talking there, you reminded me of a, an old publishing industry kind of joke about the person who, um, the author who's like not selling any books and who says, well, so-and-so from the past was a genius ahead of his time. And he also sold very few books. So I must be a genius too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly the reverse <laughs> that, that, that kind of category. Just just because it's a constraints can have this power, but that just doesn't mean because something's a constraint that it does. Uh, and the book goes into all great all kinds of great detail. There's going to be case studies and things like that. But just in the interest of, of time, um, uh, I wanted to, and speaking of books and authoring, this book already has lots of readers. Um, it's already got a lot of interest. So you're not, you're not the, the, uh, the unknown genius. You're the known genius as it were. Uh, and, uh, but, but you're writing the book. Uh, it's going to be in print eventually, but you're, you're publishing it in progress. It's about 70% done right now. And just for people who are interested in how that process works and who might want to do it themselves someday, what's your plan? Are you going to be publishing new content every week? Is it going to be every month? Do you have a plan for exactly what it's going to be getting to 100%? Mm. And, and, and just like we said earlier, right? Writing is a very personal kind of thing. For some people, the pandemic was great. They were super productive. For other people, it was sort of a, a big blocker. So everybody has a different mode. Um, I know some authors who have a really good idea of the scope of the book. And you mentioned like the 70% and somebody on Twitter actually commented and said, oh, you just need to do another 25%. And I said, careful, 
saying that it's 25% would mean that I know the scope. So, so I write very differently. I usually have a core set of ideas, right? Sort of a critical mass for a book. And I want to put those thoughts on paper. And then I sort of see what evolves out of that. I don't actually have a fixed scope in mind. And hence, I think I stole this quote from somewhere. I think it's from the movies where I say, the books are not released, they escape. There's a famous saying like movies, movies also um, escape. So for me, my writing probably goes into two different modes. So there is the incremental where I'm adding content, new ideas, right? And I plan to do that every week or other week. I might make some small edit releases and then I will add some content. But then there's sort of the bigger refactoring stages where I need to look at the book as a whole and see, oh, there's some duplication here, some missing linkage, maybe a chapter gets split into two, maybe some content shifts into another chapter. So um, I refactor my books like other people refactor code. Now, I don't have an IDE that does that automatically, so I do it by hand. And those tend to be the more quiet periods where you don't see a lot of updates, but that is because the way I explained it is I have to download the whole book into main memory <laughs> up here and then shuffle it and, and spit it back out. So the readers will probably notice that sort of different cadences um, depending on which mode I'm in. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that uh, description of the process. Every author every author has their own way of doing it. And um, uh, one of the great things about lean, the lean publishing process is that it gives you just so much freedom, right? You can you can do it however you want. Uh, and and But one thing you do very well at, at the beginning of a book is explain, this is what I'm doing, this is how I'm going to be doing it, and things like that. And so for anyone uh, listening, the book is Platform Strategy. It's being published in progress. And if you buy it on LeanPub, you'll get all the updates for free. And of course, you can also wait and get the print book eventually uh, that's going to come out too. So thank you very much, Gregor, for coming back on the podcast after uh, such a long time. Yeah, no, my, my pleasure. And yes, so print probably Q1, I'm sort of softly targeting, as you mentioned, I have a poor history of prediction, but I would say late in Q1, we would have the book stable enough. So I'm hoping for a lot of feedback from readers and then have the book stable enough that then we can go in print and then we'll see what's next and then we can do another podcast. Awesome. Thanks very much. Thank you. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.